Hey, Media People podcast listeners, if you enjoy the podcast, then you're going to love our newsletter, appropriately named the Media People Newsletter. Delivered right to your inbox, each edition is a mix of original and curated content designed to feed your curiosity while aiding in personal development. On top of more podcasts, we'll connect you with articles, interviews, and industry events. Subscribe at mediapeople.ca forward slash newsletter or go to mediapeople.beehive.com. That's B-E-E-H-I-I-V. Thanks for listening to the Media People podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts, including youtube.com slash at media people podcast. Views expressed by participants are personal. In a world where job hopping is normalized, it's rare to meet someone who has spent their entire career with the same company. And it's even rarer to hear about an intern working their way up to president. But this is the story of today's guest, Caroline Mole. Caroline is the president of PhD Canada, the Canadian division of PhD Media Worldwide. Not only is she the president, but also a lifelong employee, going back to the days when the agency was known as HYPNN. Born in Zimbabwe and raised in South Africa, Caroline moved with her family to the Toronto suburb of Oakville when she was a teenager. After graduating from high school, she enrolled in the advertising program at Sheridan College. She joined HYPNN on a media planning internship and grew with the company as it was acquired by Omnicom Media Group and integrated into the global PhD media family. Caroline Mole stops by to chat about growing up in Africa, the differences between attending school in South Africa and Canada, and how having a firm career plan can help you move from the cubicle to the corner office. PhD is one of the leading media agencies here in Canada, and what we provide is uh, marketing services that focus around media planning and buying, as well as uh, marketing strategy and measurement uh, in terms of actually being able to see how effective the results of marketing activity in in Canada is. Uh, PhD is also part of a large global network, and we are owned by Omnicom Media Group, which is uh, the number one holding company in uh, Canada. And uh, the role that I play is uh, being as the president of, of PhD is leading the PhD Toronto office. We have about 175 uh, people and that role is overseeing uh, development and adoption of our capabilities and solutions uh, across various media functions and, and marketing functions. Uh, as well as leading the agency forward in terms of service excellence uh, for all the clients uh, that we we service and, and, and look after. Caroline, thank you so much for stopping by today. Let's go back to the beginning. Where are you from? I'm originally born in Zimbabwe and was raised in South Africa um, and immigrated to Canada in the late 90s. Okay, well, so let's let's go back to that very beginning. Zimbabwe. You mentioned you were born there. How long did you live there before the family moved to South Africa? Uh, so I, I spent my very young youth age. So I, I left uh, Zimbabwe when I was about four or five years old. So you don't really remember much about Zimbabwe then? I remember the landscape, the people, the farmland, the the beautiful, beautiful, um, the, the beautiful country that it is. Um, but I don't have more specific memories of some of the the turbulence that would have been happening at the time that I, I left the country. Okay, so you mentioned turbulence there. Is is that the reason, like the political climate, that's why the family moved south to South Africa? 
Yeah, so when we left Zimbabwe, it was post-Rhodesian War, uh, and at the time there, there was massive uh, economic pressures and uh, shifts in, in the country um, that just made it uh, not necessarily the, the place where my parents wanted to raise their family. Um, and most of my extended family had already left Zimbabwe. We were, we were some of the, the last standing um, family members that were, were still there and with most immigrating to South Africa. What was life like growing up in South Africa? Like I've had some friends from South Africa and as much as they love the country, they mentioned that it can be a rough country to live in as well. Yeah. Um, South Africa is uh, just, if you ever get a chance to go and visit, it is absolutely worth visiting. It is raw beauty. Um, and the, the people are, and the culture of the country are phenomenal. Um, it's, it's, it was quite the experience growing up there. And so while I say all those positives, um, there, there was a lot of um, unease and unrest and, and still is to this day in terms of um, the, the nature of the, the, the country in itself. So um, growing up uh, was a surreal experience in terms of, uh, you know, whether it's experiencing nature and, and the wild and on safaris and things like that. But at the same time, uh, surreal in terms of the um, pressures that the society faced and whether that was the extremely high uh, crime rates and knowing people and experiencing break-ins and violent crimes and, and, and things like that. Um, there, there was a certain, certain ruggedness um, to being raised in uh, South Africa in terms of what somebody uh, it, what somebody witnesses and is exposed to and sees. And it, it gives you, um, I, I would say, a lot of grit uh, in terms of your, your upbringing and a lot of um, determination in terms of just, just who I became as, as a person. Um, and, uh, it, you know, I wouldn't change it for the world. I would have been a, a, a 10 or 11 year old girl when Nelson Mandela came into power, um, in South Africa and I watched the apartheid end. And so my experience at the time that I was there, uh, were very formative, uh, in terms of the person that I became and witnessing massive change, um, in a country, uh, over, over the course of, of young minds, let's call it, where I, I was able to be influenced on the new and the evolving and the evolution and, and change. Now, at the same time, you've got high crime and you've got massive uh, economic pressures that were, were faced in, in the 90s, including what's often referred to as brain drain of uh, mass exodus of uh, qualified people leaving the country in order to find better jobs elsewhere. Um, and today, uh, you know, South Africa continues to experience uh, much of, of those pieces, though I don't believe it was quite as bad as, as when I was there from a, a statistics perspective in terms of crime. Um, but they face rolling blackouts and infrastructure challenges um, that uh, are really unfortunate to see from, from what when I was there uh, was such a beautiful country. But on a positive note, we got to give them a shout out because they wrapped up the the Rugby Union World Cup. Sure was did. It a week ago, two weeks ago, yeah. Yeah, uh, sure did. Super, super happy uh, that they succeeded um, in that. And, you know, for anybody listening, um, you know, if you do ever get the chance to go and experience South Africa, Cape Town is uh, spectacular and well worth the visit. Um, most people that uh, have no affiliation to South Africa but go there 
on a vacation will come back feeling like they have found their roots. Um, it is it is that type of experience. I call myself South African, um, even though I've actually been in Canada now longer than I was in South Africa. And speaking of sport, here's something that you and I have in common. You were a competitive swimmer. What was your event? Uh, so freestyle. Um, I, I uh, in my youth was competitive swimmer and freestyle was uh, my my strongest swim, though I, I did relay as well as part of the team. When you were swimming it independently, was it more of a sprint or an endurance? Sprint. Sprint 50 meters? Yes. But you were also big into field hockey. When you came to Canada, did you kind of have to like, was it hard for you to wrap your head around the name field hockey? Because I know abroad it's just called hockey, whereas what we know as hockey is called ice hockey abroad. Yeah, and you know, I actually was just talking about this last night um, with uh, somebody in, in my neighborhood because they play field hockey and it was the first person in Canada, despite being here for over 20 years, um, that I've met that uh, plays field hockey and I didn't even know if you could in Canada. And, um, you know, when I first came here, um, trying to explain to people that field hockey um, even existed, most people haven't heard about it, uh, was one thing. And then for people to contemplate how that would differ from the game of hockey uh, was uh, ice hockey was a whole nother thing. Um, still to this day, I don't skate. So I never picked up um, I never picked up ice hockey. And, um, you know, I, I think field hockey is is a, a really great sport and it's it hopefully will pick up in, in popularity in Canada, though. I think that's uh, um, just my own wish. Was that one of the sports that was recently added to the Summer Olympics? I don't know the answer to that uh, question. I wish I wish I had a producer like Joe Rogan, like Jamie off into the corner where I could be like, Google that so we can add that in the conversation, because I know <laughs> that they added a number of different sports to the uh, next summer games along with flag football i think cricket and uh and i'm surprised you didn't throw cricket out there because i know cricket is very big in south africa i know it's not as big as rugby but it's up there yeah i i mean i would i would say the the sports growing up there as as a kid that you sort of most often are engaged in and watching and and seeing in in your schools and that um rugby netball um which is kind of it's not basketball but it's kind of like a women's basketball version in an outdoor court um, and very different from the basketball game uh, though you're you're putting a ball into the net um, cricket and rugby were sort of the the four predominant uh, popular sports that uh, people would play were you big into fishing and I throw that, that throw that out there because when I lived abroad and I was living with other South Africans all of them seemed to be into fishing like it was just second nature for them yeah, so I wasn't big into fishing, but I grew up sailing um, off, uh, off in in a place called East London was one of the cities that I, I lived in. And so I, I spent many of my weekends sailing uh, in uh, ocean sailing. Um, and within doing that, it's, you know, if, if you've ever been sailing, it's it's sort of slow moving. Um, you know, we we would um, put a line out and, and had experience actually catching things like small uh, baby sharks and things like that. So, um, but it wasn't, it wasn't sort of a pastime that I would naturally choose. You've probably been asked this before, but I'm going to ask because you brought up sailing and you brought up baby sharks. I know that great whites are very endemic to, uh, to the ocean in and around South Africa. Any encounters with, uh, with great whites? Yeah. Um, it's one of my fears for fun fact. 
Um, when I was about 12 years old, again, living in East London, um, you know, after school, we were down the street from a beach and after school, my friends and I would always go uh, for a swim in the ocean and hang out on the beach uh, in the afternoon. And one particular afternoon, uh, my, my girlfriend and I were swimming in the ocean and uh, we were quite far out, but still in a bay area. And we actually witnessed um, slowly, uh, being 12 year olds at the time, um, two, two surfers being attacked by great whites. Oh, and God. so it kind of happened in the sense of we all of a sudden realized that no one else was in the water near us and we didn't understand why and only to see everyone running towards the beach as you kind of see in movie scenes. And when we looked around and looked over to the bay, you could see the watercolor changing and uh, everyone running along uh, the, around the bay to where the, the, surf, the surface cove was um, to see what was going on. And so for about two weeks thereafter, no one swam in that, that beach. Um, but uh, after that, we kind of got back into the water. To this day, uh, I do not want to see what's in the water underneath me. It really freaks me out. If a, if a shark's going to get me, I'll, I'd rather not know it's coming. <laughs> Literally what you described sounds like a scene out of Jaws. It sounds like we were story storyboarding something for another Jaws movie. Yeah. Yeah. And and one of the one of the one of the surfers that was um attacked did survive. Unfortunately, the other one did not. Did you have any influences or anyone you looked up to growing up? Not in not in the idle uh, sense of it. Um, you know, there were people in my life that I met or were part of my life uh, that contributed um indirectly to influencing, uh, you know, who I am today. And so for an example is in, in the eighties, uh, one of my aunts was uh, the breadwinner uh, for her family, so to speak, which in South Africa in the eighties um, and maybe in, in most other countries in the eighties was very uncommon. Um, and for me, I always admired her um, for doing that. And I also admired my uncle for, for taking that primary caregiver uh, sort of stand. And, you know, if I reflect in my current life, um, you know, my, my husband um, has stood uh, supporting me in my career. And, and when we had children, actually took, uh, uh, took a backseat to his career and, and helped us raise our, our babies while I, I worked for the first couple of years. And, um, you know, those types of things have, have a, a huge influence in terms of how you shape and become uh, as you, you grow into an adult and into your careers. Um, and then the other is, is a, a little bit more indirectly, but, um, you know, growing up, my parents um, were, you know, always challenged me to do better than 100%. And, you know, that it sounds surreal, but, you know, if you think of in schooling and you would get an exam, sometimes there's bonus questions. And so if I would come home with, you know, 95% on a test, it would be where's the other 5% or, you know, how could you get 105% if, if that was a, a possibility? And so I, I think um, that for me has always pushed me um, in, in terms of making sure that I am the best that I can be um, and striving beyond, um, you know, put, making sure that what, how I challenge myself is challenging myself beyond what the possible is. Um, and then, you know, one of the, one of the references um, that I often talk about is uh, the role that a teacher played in my life. And when I was a, a young girl, I was fairly shy um, and uh, at very strong grades. But if you asked me to do public speaking in front of the class, I would refuse. And because it, it just made me so uncomfortable. 
Um, and it was a teacher in about grade eight uh, that took me aside and explained um, the, the fact of life, which is that you're always presenting yourself, whether that's a job interview, whether that's in, um, you know, in your work environment, whether that's a retail job as a youngster, uh, and how you're showing up to, to deal with people in, in general, whether it's going to a party um, or, you know, applying for college or university and, and all of those pieces. And it was that conversation um, that she had with me that despite the anxiety that public speaking would give me, um, gave me a reframe on how to tackle um, those sort of uncomfortable moments, those, those, those moments as a human where you will naturally be inclined to shy away um, because it makes you really uncomfortable. And uh, I, I would say that was hugely um, profound uh, because today, well, uh, you know, public speaking still gets my nerves up. Um, that shift allowed me to embrace being uncomfortable and pushing myself um, to embrace those moments of opportunities. And today, um, I would say public speaking uh, is, is one of the things that I really enjoy uh, doing. And I probably enjoy it because it gives me those emotions, those nerves. And I like the roller coaster of the emotions and preparation during and then, you know, how you feel coming out of uh, doing those large public uh, speaking uh, types of um, sessions. So when that teacher reframed it for you, did you start to mentally treat every opportunity to speak publicly or just to speak in front of the class as an opportunity to get past those anxious moments? Yes. And it would be the pet talk before and when those opportunities would come up to be able to speak of making sure that I rise to the occasion and didn't shy away from it. I didn't allow myself um, to shy away from those moments. I worked through, um, you know, how it made me feel, how to make sure that I had the confidence and was prepared to be able to be really good at doing, uh, doing uh, public speaking. Do you remember the moment where you felt, I've got this under control? I'm no longer anxious about this. I'm embracing it and I love it. I would say it was probably in the middle stage of my career at, at PhD where I was asked on a very short notice um, to do public, uh, a, a, a talk um, to present something uh, at an industry event and they were, they were going to be anywhere from 300 to 500 people in the venue. And at that moment, my nerves shot through the roof um, and uh, I kind of had that two second thought of, actually, I want to do it. So I've got these nerves, but they're excited. It's excitement. It's not dread. Um, and for me, that was sort of that turning point of like, actually, I really enjoy doing this. Um, and me, you know, to this day, still seek those types of opportunities to be able to, to leap on them and, and go through uh, the emotions of getting prepared and then, you know, working, working through those, those public speaking events. Your first job ever was as a waitress and a clerk at a coffee shop. I'm wondering, how does that tie back into what we've just been speaking about as well? Because you said it's not just public speaking. It's about every opportunity to present yourself. And you're going up to someone at a coffee shop and you've got to know the menu like the back of your hand. You've got to make sure you make the right recommendations and you keep the customer happy. So was that a bit of practice for you as well, too? I would say that, um, you know, those those first jobs um, are really key in forming different soft skills that maybe you don't realize that you need to have. So in those environments, you you sometimes get fantastic 
customers that it's really easy to to serve and keep them happy and work through and sometimes you get really difficult customers and you've got to keep a smile on your face and um, you know you have to be able to give them what they need and, and and keep them happy at the same time as diffusing situations and so they were different interactions um, different interactions that put yourself out there to strangers uh, you know if, every time you showed up for work um, that that were really really good what did you learn about yourself doing this job I am I'm gonna say that uh, you know, that customer service side is one part and parcel of what you learn and, you know, how to read people and, and be able to uh, take advantage of um, the, the warm and lovely customers and uh, diffuse the situation with difficult customers. Um, I think the other, other part for me was just also the social interaction. Um, you know, I really enjoy being around people and engaging with people, whether they are people I know or people I don't know. Um, and that sort of exposed me to uh, taking taking the enjoyment of those social interactions from a service perspective um, in terms of what uh, it is. I, I think the other part is in, in my personal life, I also really enjoy um, food and, and entertaining. And that was probably influenced by some of those first jobs. What brought you to Sheridan College? What do you, like, how did you even find Sheridan College? Because I have no clue how the college would get on the radar of someone living in South Africa. And I mean that with the utmost respect to Sheridan College. Yeah, so I, I when I came to Canada, um, I actually came here uh, and finished out my last year of high school um, in or last, I'm trying to think now to the years of what it was, but maybe my last two years of high school here. Um, I also um, lived in Oakville. And so for those, for those that don't know, a, a lot of um, South Africans, when they move to Canada, end up living in Oakville. There's there's a South African butcher shop and um, many, many people uh, that are uh, South African in that community. And so by default, when we immigrated with my family to Canada, um, that, that was where we relocated to. And uh, I just so happened to live really close to Sheridan College. And uh, at the time, and I'm, I'm sure it still does, it had a really strong um, college reputation uh, in in the school system in terms of presenting it as as one of those viable options. Um, I was a person that was in a rush for life, um, and what I mean by that is when I was contemplating choosing college or university, um, for me, college got me into the workforce quicker, uh, and uh, I was in a hurry. And uh, they have a really good advertising program that when I did the orientation program, um, the orientation session for finding out about the programs, they kind of sold me uh, in on it. Um, I also had exposure to marketing in, in some of the, the high school courses that I had done, as well as friends and family that worked in marketing. Um, and through that, it, it kind of led me to choosing marketing. And then when I actually attended Sheridan, I think it was in my first week of classes, um, you know, one of the classes that we had was media planning and buying. Uh, and the minute I took that class, I was like, right, and that's exactly where I want to go, um, which is which is not too common for <laughs> most people. Okay, I want to take one step back. So you mentioned that you finished high school in Canada. How did high school in Canada compare to just high school in general in South Africa, or just just how did Canada stack up your experiences here when you first landed? Like, was there any sort of culture shock compared to South Africa and Zimbabwe? Because you saw a lot in Zimbabwe and South Africa. 
And then yeah. Canada is very tame compared to what you experience in those two countries. Yeah, so I, I definitely had a culture shock. Um, you know, from a culture shock perspective, uh, the maturity of my peers was probably the most drastic. Um, so I, I felt like um, my peer set was much younger than I was uh, in, in maturity. And I, I think that comes from what you're exposed to in, in life. Um, and uh, the, the other side of it was uh, the education system. So South Africa is a much more rigorous and, and disciplined um, education system from when I was there. Um, and I can't speak for what it's like now. And uh, so when I, when I came to Canada, I actually found uh, it relatively easy. And I felt that I was ahead, both in maturity, but also in not being challenged enough from what I was accustomed to um, from back home. And so, you know, sped through the, the, the last few credits that I needed to do uh, to get my graduation. And then, you know, like I said, I was in a rush, chose college over university so I could get into the workforce. Um, but I think that the biggest culture shock was the informality of schooling in Canada in terms of, um, you know, just students at school and, and the discipline or lack of discipline uh, as, a, as a result of how Canada is, um, which, you know, as a mom of two kids that are in middle school and high school, um, can appreciate it now for their generation. But uh, for me coming in, um, you know, I kind of missed the structure that I was accustomed to from back home. Were you concerned that that would impact your own habits? Because we all become byproducts or products of our environment. And if everyone around you is a little bit more relaxed about things, eventually you're going to become a little bit more relaxed. Um, I wasn't. And um, I mostly wasn't because I, I just kept on my values and things that were important to me. So, you know, for instance, when I graduated from Sheridan, I was uh, a Sheridan scholar, which was graduating as, as top of the program for my graduating year. And so, um, you know, likewise, my determination and discipline allowed me to do well academically, um, but also what allowed me to forge my career in the direction. And, you know, my head was just much more screwed on than my peer set that took them a, a few, you know, extra years to, to get there. Can we say that HYPN was your first foray into uh, the media business? Um, I did a, I did a couple co-ops at um, different, you know, through the college programs, different co-ops that you do. And so I did a brief co-op uh, in radio promotions um, and before choosing HYPNN uh, for, which is now PhD for my internship. And I, I think that was one of the things that was kind of interesting um, for it is I, I hand selected them. I, I think it took me six calls to six different people to get the internship. Um, and I refused, despite being a, a top scholar, I refused any interviews um, in the hopes that I would get my first job with them. Um, and uh, that did happen. Uh, it ended up happening on my uh, last day of my internship that they, they offered me a job. But on the last day, I was quite worried uh, that I had made the wrong determined decisions as to how I was going to get my way into the company that I wanted to work for. What yeah. did the internship entail? Like when you started doing it, because this is one of the challenges I find speaking with students is, is that they go through a college or university program. They teach you to be a leader of tomorrow and your first job is not a leadership job. So I find that they're a little bit jaded or disappointed at the beginning because they're not being able to put a lot of the skills and things that they had learned in college or at least action on it immediately in their, yeah. their very first entry level job. 
Yeah, uh, one of the one of the reasons why I actually chose college over university was um, at the at the time my thoughts were I wanted on the job skill sets that I could apply um, versus you know at, at at the time that I was graduating university was much more theoretical versus hands on um, in terms of when you enter into the workforce and so. Um, you know, when I did my internship, uh, there were a lot of software tools and things like that that we had learned during the college program that we were able to put into practice in that internship. So I think the first couple of weeks, I spent a ton of my time doing competitive analysis for one of the clients um, that, that were there. And it was one of those things that, um, you know, I was well equipped to be able to do in terms of knowing how to run the data, look at the data. Um, and then the coaching from an internship was, you know, how to structure the presentation to the company's um, way of doing things and, and that. Um, it was also, you know, managing some of the administrative type things that we do, like um, uh, work back schedules for getting campaigns into market and making sure we've got the specs over to the creative. And so it, it was very practical application on specific tasks that I was able to contribute to. Um, and it, it's not like you start day one and you knock it out the park from the get go. I think in my, in my month there, I maybe did eight different brand competitive analysis. And so the nice thing about it being task focused was you got to do the same uh, report, uh, you know, multiple times within a concise period of time uh, to really help you refine uh, that work that you were doing. HYPN, when it made the transition to PhD, how did the company change? When HYPNM became one of the, the first, um, one of the, the first, uh, it wasn't exactly the first, it was in the first five uh, independent agencies that became part of the PhD network. Um, you know, at the, at initially it was just rebranding and talking about um, how we're going to be part of the network and the, the benefits that we get as uh, being part of a network in terms of the vision, the mission, the tools, the capabilities, the, the way of thinking. And so um, in that initial transition, it was really um, amalgamating our way of doing things as an independent agency uh, and integrating it into the PhD uh, way of doing things. We're going to take a quick break. Enjoying this episode? Of course you are, or you wouldn't have made it this far. Compliment your listening experience by subscribing to the Media People newsletter at mediapeople.ca forward slash newsletter or at mediapeople.beehive.com. It's a mix of original and curated content designed to feed your curiosity while aiding in personal development. On top of more podcasts, we'll connect you with articles, interviews, and industry events. Subscribe at mediapeople.ca forward slash newsletter or mediapeople.beehive.com. You're one of the OGs on digital media. What was it like when you started off in digital? And I say this because I started off in broadcast and I, and I was still working in digital when broadcast was king. I kind of know how things were treated on the, how people were treated on the supplier side or how the medium was treated. What was it like for you taking a, a backseat to broadcast, if that was even the case? Yeah, um, you know, it, 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 it wasn't so much that it was a backseat to broadcast, it was a, a, a huge uphill battle to educate clients and show them why digital was important and why it should be included um, within the, the channel mix in terms of marketing uh, initiatives. And it was also a lot of 
uh, internal education in terms of the the company, the pe- every every person within the company um, having a, a understanding of what digital is. And so, you know, in the in the early days, I I felt like I was a teacher in the sense that um, as we established our digital capabilities post dot com bust. Um, in a more formal way, uh, it, you know, for us, it was all about education to clients, all about education to um, our staff and uh, making sure that uh, we were building the momentum with the consumer adoption uh, that that was happening in terms of time spent and um, how the internet was shaping our consumer media consumption. I think those that had been in the industry long before uh, I was um, shifting that mindset where TV has worked so well for so many decades um, that, you know, for them, TV being king was, was definitely the predominant. And in the early days, digital started just as, you know, single digit percentage before going to double digit. And, you know, today we sit at more than likely half of uh, the budget being in, in digital channels. And so it's taken, um, you know, the better part of two decades for that shift, which is, which, by the way, is no different from consumer shift. Um, you know, we take our consumer behavior that we have as teens and in our young 20s, those follow us through um, into our 30s, 40s and 50s. And so it's, it's sort of that generational shift um, that that helped with it. And, um, you know, at, at the early days, it was one of the most measurable uh, channels in terms of immediacy, um, be it be the KPIs, maybe the, the false KPIs that um, we've shifted away for in, in today's era. Did you have to put up with the line digital extension? Because I heard that quite a bit when I, because I've worked sales side my entire life and yeah. I've worked at a couple of integrated companies. And every time I'd go into a meeting where we had broadcast or another platform, it would always be, oh, the digital extension. We're gonna yeah. we're gonna let the idea reside here, and then you can get the table scraps. Um, yeah, I, I mean, definitely. I still remember the days that you know many of the the traditional companies, be them broadcast or on the print side, would give us digital banners for bonusing. Um, you know, we <laughs> yep. didn't have to pay for them, and as that will change, all of a sudden you've got to pay for them. And those CPMs came and added premium versus the freebies that we were accustomed to. Making sure people understood. Uh, the role that digital plays and that it can be used in isolation was was part of that journey. Um, you know, when we started our capabilities, I, I always jokingly tell my kids this, you know, mum was doing this before YouTube was invented or before the social <laughs> platforms were launched. And, uh, you know, we, we got to ride um, the emergence and that evolution um, of those platforms coming to the marketplace and watching that share and exponential growth that those platforms saw um, coming out of the gate. Do you tell them that we also had to watch TV when it was on? It's not like we all of our programs were on demand. It's like yeah. if you wanted to watch something at 1130, you had to be available at 1130. Yeah, and, and you know, we do. And my kids have experienced a couple of times when we've been traveling you in the hotel room and you turn on the TV and you've got to actually go and find the show you want to watch and they <laughs> don't understand it. Um, which, you know, most of those hotels have progressed to allowing people to sign into, you know, their, their Netflix or, or subscription accounts to be able to watch what they want to watch. But um, it's kind of comical to see um, the the new generation um, witness those sort of what they would think of as archaic experiences in today's age. How did your career change when you were promoted to group account director? 
Um, you know, at, at, at the time, um, the, the big part of it was the people under me were growing and the team was growing and the, the structure within the team from being, you know, just call it half a dozen or less of, of a team to doubling, tripling in, in short time. Um, you know, for me, it, it really was about how uh, as, as digital matured, as, as our capabilities matured um, and the industry as a whole was maturing, um, was really about talent management and um, adoption to the change. And, you know, one of the things that we believe at PhD is it's all about being ahead of the change and, and having a strong voice um, at the table in terms of how the industry is shifting with it. And so it was making sure um, that culturally that mindset and appetite to progress and, and be at the forefront um, of those pieces were, were all in there. Um, the most difficult part of that role was, you know, as the team grew, more and more personalities to to manage. And, um, you know, as I, I think outside of our industry, that's talent management is always one of the, the toughest uh, parts of the job. As your career started to grow and you got into managing people more, and I guess you could sort of say less, I don't want to say less of the business because that doesn't sound right, but you, you know what I mean? You become less of a player and more of a coach. Was that hard for you kind of letting go of some of the day-to-day -day stuff that you probably enjoy doing? Yeah, I, it's still hard for me. <laughs> um, I, I, I love media. I especially love digital media. And, um, you know, as, as we witness the change back then and as we witness the change that we see happening right now in it, um, you know, I struggle to not dig in and, and get my hands dirty and, and I still will jump in and, and get my hands dirty and, in certain areas, but I, you know, I, I think for me, um, it's balancing the role that I do and the role that the teams do, but making sure that I don't lose line of sight um, at, at any of those stages to where the world is headed um, and what are the capabilities that we have and how do they need to adapt and how do our people uh, need to adapt and, and what is our service offering to our client and, and how does that evolve with the change um, that's happening, uh, be it with emerging channels or, or be it with digital and media as a whole. That is a perfect segue into my next question. And how did everything change for you when you became the VP of digital and emerging media? That was definitely one of my favorite roles. Um, you know, for, from my lens, it was a focus. The, the team uh, had expanded enough that I didn't have to worry about sort of the, the everyday digital pieces. And it was really focused on what was coming um, and making sure that it was focused on what was coming, the education around it for clients and internal um, teams, as well as the adoption uh, and delivery of our evolving service capabilities. And so it was all the fun stuff, all the unknown, um, and how we navigate it, uh, both for our clients and, and internally in terms of bringing our teams along uh, for that that ride as those new channels entered uh, a state of maturity and and um, you know become prime time uh, for our client base. How do you get clients to buy into new channels? Because we know that clients are fairly risk adverse, and when something is new, it could go one way or it could go the other. Yeah, um, you know, you you're never going to win uh, out the gate with every single client. It really is about finding the strengths in your client partnerships uh, where they have appetite for innovation and test and learn. Um, back then, there was a lot more risk adverse um, natural sort of mindsets. 
uh, today, I think that it's the inverse, which is there's a hunger for test and learn. There's a hunger for looking at what is new and, and what is different. And so, um, you know, at the end of the day, with, with some of our really strong client partnerships, we were able to drive innovation agendas. And the innovation agendas were set as such that there was the ability for us to fund being in some of these emerging channels and to take the risk um, to see what it would do for their business and, uh, you know, not, not necessarily fear the failure um, or mitigate the, the risk with failure in terms of how you balance tried and true um, with uh, that, that sort of test and learn or, or innovation framework. In that role, did you see anything that you thought was, oh, this is going to be the next big thing and it turned out not to be? Maybe it fell flat on its face or maybe the reverse of it where you saw it and you go, this is never going to take off. And then all of a sudden it became the status quo. Yeah. So there's, there's probably two that just, you know, come to mind when you say that. One is Second Life. Oh, second I remember life. that. Yes. Yeah. Second Life was, you know, today it wouldn't see, so, seem so foreign. It was way ahead of its time. Um, and so it came and it went in, in a really quick instance. And it was one of those things that some of our digital marketers were saying, like, you know, do we need to be there? What are we doing? Um, and uh, my advice at the time was, you know, depending on who the advertiser was, be cautious of um, we, we don't know what the adoption is going to be. And, and there was no early signals to suggest that it was going to be anything. Now, at the time, it was the very first concept like that. Um, that had sort of made its way to to Canada and our marketing industry um, versus you think about, um, you know, metaverse today and, and the maturity and really that's just, that's, you know, second life on steroids in terms of what the full potential of it is and the, the, mind, the people are here and they, they're more ready for it. The other is mobile, um, you know, when, when, when mobile advertising came out for us, it was like, wow, this is going to be huge. Um, and as an industry and as one of the voices at the, the table in terms of predicting uh, where the industry was headed, um, for us, it was like, yeah, next year is going to be the year of mobile. And I think that happened about five years and then we stopped saying anything and all of a sudden, boom, mobile was massive. Um, and it had happened organically versus us predicting it. And it, it, it really happened um, by us stop by by the industry, uh, both in the vendor community as, as well as on the agency side and the marketer side, of, of stopping to try and isolate each and every device and rather thinking about the content that's on those devices and, and navigating those, you know, more from a cross-screen um, perspective. And so those are the two that are, are kind of fun to think about in, in uh, you know, reflection of things that, that came um, and came and went and, you know, now 10 plus years later, back again with Metaverse in the case of Second Life. And in the case of mobile, we predicted it took much longer for it to fully emerge. And then it, it just boomed overnight. I used to get so annoyed when people would refer to mobile as the second screen of television. I finally snapped in one meeting, not like lost my mind, but I said, is it really the second screen if you're carrying it around with you everywhere you go and it's commanding that much of your attention? Like, why are we measuring it on size? It should be on attention. We, we used to jokingly call the, the mobile device uh, your lover um, <laughs> in the sense of, you know, it's the first thing you touch when you wake up. It's, you, you don't let it go throughout the day. It's, it's always with you and it's the last thing um, you, you touch before you go to sleep. And, um, it, you know, the, the role that 
the the mobile device plays in uh, the the Canadian's life is is so integral. Um, and uh, I think I think sometimes as marketers we can be slow to adopt in what the consumer is much more uh, quickly adopting in consumption. Um, and uh, I think we're better at it these days, but in the early days of digital was this reticence to evolve. And at the time, um, some of the legacy channels were more predominant in senior marketers' lives and therefore mm. more relevant to them where maybe some of those digital channels um, or even the concept of engaging in some of those digital channels would be more foreign. Um, you know, YouTube's a, an excellent example of that, uh, which is in the early days, why would people want to watch so many cat videos? Um, and and still to this day, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, the, the the videos that people consume and the reality, it's in the eye of the beholder. And then you think about all the other platforms um, and the, the nature of the content that we just get zoned out on, um, on our phones, on on any of, of the social platforms. And, um, you know, we always got to ground ourselves in it's in the eye of the beholder. It's in the consumer behavior um, as opposed to the marketer behavior. Let's bring everything full circle now. Your promotion to president of PhD. How does that come about? Like, is there some sort of plan laid out for you to get to that role? Does it one day does someone call you into their office? Go, congratulations. You're now the president. Yeah. Like, how does that whole thing come about? Yeah, um, you know, and speaking about it from from my own uh, experience, uh, you know, the part, part of I'm a big believer in career pathing. And so um, you know, throughout my career um, with with my then CEO, um, those were the types of conversations that uh, I would have with uh, the the CEO in, in the sense of here's my ambitions and, you know, here's the timelines I've given myself. I, I still to this day set myself one, five and 10 year goals in terms of where I want to take myself. And that was one of the ambitions. I'm trying to think ex exact timing, but let's let's say two years. It, it was either two or three years uh, in advance of me coming into the role. Um, I vividly remember the lunch with the the CEO, which was you know just a, a a more formal dialogue around you know the the timelines to which I was going to get into uh, that position. Uh, them prompting me of you know feeling me out. Was it still something that I had ambitions for? And um, you know making sure that uh, I was still on the path for that track. Um, fast forward to the time that I took the role and, and keep in mind the role that I had prior to then was heavily involved in the operations for half of the agency in the sense of what digital represented. Um, and so when I received my, my actual position, it started with um, a formal ask of, did I want the role? And that kind of took me by surprise because I, in my head, I was like, yeah, we spoke about this. This is where I've been heading for the last several years. Like, yes. <laughs> um, in reflection, I actually think it's a really important question. And I think it's a question that everybody should ask themselves as they aspire for the next role, which is, do you really want the role? Um, you know, the more senior you get in a, a position within the company, um, you know, the more the stress and the pressure and the demands. Um, and uh, in reflection, I have a greater appreciation for it. But in the moment, it seemed like a, a silly question to ask me. Um, and uh, once I had accepted that, uh, you know, there were there were several conversations with different people within the organization. And, and then. Um, I was officially told that I would be taking the position. 
And so, you know, those, it, it was super exciting for me. Um, it was a big ambition from the start of my career. I, I always kind of knew that that's where I wanted to go within the first couple of years of being in the industry. Um, and uh, and so I, you know, my advice for anybody listening, if, if, if you're thinking about it uh, as how, where do you want to go next? I think it starts with knowing where you want to head and then having those conversations with your, your leaders uh, of your company uh, in a professional way in terms of making your ambitions known is really key. Um, and also making sure that you, you truly think about it um, and reflect on what it takes to do those positions. And, and when, when I say that, I mean what it takes in terms of um, your resilience and uh, your uh, mindset, your commitment, um, and all of those pieces. Because it, it, the job always gets harder um, the higher in the rung that, that you climb. It doesn't get easier. Why did you decide, though, to stay at PhD throughout your career and, and grow it here? And I prefaced that, or I should have prefaced it by saying that, something that's very, very endemic of our industry is, is that people move around quite a bit. And there's one professional in the, in the industry who's very vocal. He, he's actually published it on, in some of the trades saying that if you want to grow your career, you should be moving to a different company in a different position every yeah. two years. And I'm looking at everything that you've accomplished here. And you're basically the antithesis to what he's saying. Like you yeah. have ticked off all your goals. You've made it to the top and it's been with one company. It is not typical in our industry to have this happen. And I think for me, there's a couple of things that um, make it slightly different. One is I chose this company as the company that I believed in and have been part of the journey from it being an independent agency to it becoming part of a, a global network um, and part of Omnicom. And from a very, very young age, to put it in context, when I first started building out the digital capabilities uh, at PhD, I would have been 23 years old. And uh, to be able to have such a um, vital role within a company in terms of building from the bottom um, and bringing in and evolving and adapting the capabilities within the company, uh, be those you know locally here in Canada or from the network, um, it's ex it, it's hugely exciting. It's hard, um, but it is is very rewarding. And so for me, it has been as much as it's it's part of a big global network. Um, you know, I feel like PhD uh, is my company. Um, there's a, a owner mindset with it in the sense that, and and we say this to um, you know our people. Um, in, in mentorship sessions, which is you have a voice at the table and you can help shape and form a company um, in every part of the role that you are within an organization. And uh, with PhD specifically, the culture of the organization, the leadership, um, you know, here within Canada and, and globally has allowed for that. Um, and I don't think you see that at all other companies. Um, and I don't th think you necessarily see that at all other organizations um, where it truly feels uh, that it is culturally just embedded in, in the way that we behave as an organization. And so for me, um, you know, I spoke about career pathing. Uh, there have been times throughout my 20 plus years with uh, the company um, that I have reevaluated. Is this the right company for me? Is this the right career path for me? Do I want to be on the client side? Do I want to be, um, you know, on the sales or, or the tech side? And whenever I think about what's important to me in terms of challenges, growth opportunity, um, 
and uh, the the overall uh, culture of the organization. I think leadership and culture of an organization are super key to anybody. Of you need to believe in the culture of the, and be part of the culture of the company, and you need to believe in the leadership uh, of the the organization are, are super key. The other part to it is making sure that as you progress in your career, that that company has the opportunity for you to evolve and progress. Um, and that they're open to helping you get there. And for me, PhD did all of those things. Um, and when I when I coach individuals today within 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 with that outside of the company, um, it's it's those pillars that I always talk about. And the fourth pillar that I haven't mentioned yet is the money side. So often people will say, if you move every two years, you'll jump in in the do- it's a dollar figure thing. You will increase your your income um, more quickly. Um, in the short term, yes. In, in the long term, no. And so, you know, when you jump in that moment, yes, you might increase it right then and there. But if you actually wait out in your organization, assuming you're a high performer, assuming they have the growth opportunity in that, you will achieve that. It just may take a few more months um, and uh, and you will be able to grow. And so I've actually witnessed it with my peer set. So if I rewind to when I was a director, um, you know, I continue to grow by staying at the same organization. And if I if I reflect on some of my peer sets um, from the time, the same cannot be said of all. And uh, the big difference there is um, those of us, particularly after being in a more senior position, those of us that had a longer term within one organization um, actually have probably gotten further than those of us that bounced around. And so I, I think that's a really important part. Um, and for me, what I find most rewarding in my career is being part of a company that I have a hand in building and growing. And uh, when you move around, it, it you don't build the same uh, respect, reputation, uh, and belief from leaderships that may leadership people that maybe you don't have interaction with all the time. Um, and the endurance of of me being within PhD um, has allowed me from over the, the course of that time to build that credibility um, and belief and, and capability. Caroline, this has been a fantastic chat. Thank you so much for being generous with your time. I know you've got a packed day today because award season kicks off and there's an award show tonight, but let's jump right into rapid fire questions. The campaign you were most proud of. For me, uh, it has to be Dove Toxic Beauty supporting the, the Dove Self-Esteem Fund. Your favorite movie? Tough because it differs from time to time, but uh, I am going to say the Jurassic Park franchise. If Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, who would you want to play you? Um, I would like Zoe Deschanel to play me. She is very energetic and quirky, and uh, I I think she would make a, a great character to play me. Do you think she could nail the South African accent? Because I hear that's one of the hardest ones for actors to nail. I hope so. Um, I always find sometimes people get me confused with Australian, which is maybe a little bit easier for actors to portray. <laughs> that was one of the reasons that people thought Leonardo DiCaprio should have gotten an Oscar for Blood Diamonds, because they said that he really worked with his 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 dialect and accent coach and really nailed the accent. He did. He did. My follow up question to that, if Hollywood were to make that movie based on your life story, what would you call it? See her grow with the subtitle of Young Girl from Africa Rising in a World of Change. Your favorite book? 
really loved the Outlander by Diana Gabaldon. Um, I read all the, the, the full series and, and even the, the additional subtext books um, well before the show was ever a thing. What book are you currently reading? Um, I'm, I read constantly. And uh, so from a business perspective, I'm currently in the middle of Future Skills by Bernard Marr. Um, and uh, from a fiction perspective, I'm always addicted to series. So I am busy working my way through Kelly Armstrong, who's an Ontario author, um, and her Rockton City series. Your favorite song? Okay, I'll keep it on the African theme. Um, it's it's kind of like movies. There's never just one song that I could call my favorite. But for today, I will say Diamonds on My Shoes by Paul Simon. The best advice you've ever received? I, I told you the story already. Um, you know, for me, it was uh, about my my teacher around grade eight and talking to me about always presenting myself in life in general and needing to get over my shyness. My signature closing question, if you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why? It, it's a tough question. I, I very passionately love what I do. Um, and uh I would say that I would want to teach. Um, I, I think uh, it's part of my retirement plan. Uh, I would like to be a professor of business. Caroline, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca, your favorite podcast platform, or youtube.com slash at mediapeoplepodcast. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.